The reading of God's word this morning is from the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Follow along with me in your copy of God's word. Hear the word or follow along in your device. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man also was a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went away in a rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray one more time before we turn to the sermon. Let's pray together. Our gracious King, Father, we need your word above all things. All worries and cares, we want our lives ordered right, right side up 
by your word. We know you search the earth looking for those whose heart is completely yours. So, Lord, here are our hearts. We offer them to you promptly and sincerely. In Jesus' name, amen. Grace is surprising. Great events turn on small hinges. When the queen of Korea lost her little child by death, a slave girl in the palace told her of heaven where the child had gone and the Savior who would take her there. And the gospel was first introduced to Korea by a little captive maid. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. No actions performed in faith, brothers and sisters, are insignificant. Were the actions of that slave girl in the Korean palace no matter? Of course they mattered. Sometimes God does not allow us to have flashy success that we might live by a humble faithfulness, trusting God. You never know how God will use your faithfulness. God is a great rewarder of faith. So friends, outpourings of Yahweh, His Holy Spirit, in a time of decline. That's one way to summarize the context of Elisha's ministry in the book of 2 Kings. You see, the author of 2 Kings is highlighting God's power and his life through miracles in a dead Israel in the book of 2 Kings. And really, in reality, to better understand actually the Gospels, we need to understand 2 Kings. And we would probably go further. We need to understand our Old Testament to really actually understand the Gospels as they are meant to be understood. And so we're in 2 Kings. Throughout Jesus' life, his mission was to fulfill the story of Israel. When the people of God, what the people of God are to be for the world. And Jesus shows us. Right off the bat, in 2 Kings, we have Elijah. A type for John the Baptist, hairy and girded with leather. And he has a confrontation with a bad king. And this would be, of course, Ahab. Just like John the Baptist and Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas. Israel was in decline then too, but God remembered his covenant promises. In the first chapter of 2 Kings, there are repetitions of the word 50 and the presence of torches, fire. 
50 days after Jesus' miraculous resurrection came fire of a different kind on Israel. Not the fire of judgment this time, but the fire of the Holy Spirit, as we mentioned in Bible study hour. The fire of Pentecost. Elijah is, of course, taken to heaven, and a double portion of God's Spirit falls on Elisha, who is a true type of Jesus Christ, the great anointed one, as Elisha was formerly. So Jewish readers of the Gospels would have recognized illusions and connections to the Old Testament all over in the ministry of Christ. Elijah to Elisha was a setup for what was to come a fiery John the Baptist to a greater Elisha, the Lord Jesus. And Elisha in 2 Kings works many great miracles. It's entertaining, interesting reading, isn't it? He performs a miracle for a widow, like Jesus did. Elisha, like Jesus and the disciples, are cared for by the hospitality of women, the church. Elisha tells a Shunammite woman that she will have a child, likely an old age conception as well like that of Sarah or Elizabeth, John's mother. But you probably know the story. This Shunammite's child dies. And just as Jesus raises up others from the dead, Elisha, by the power of the Spirit, raises up this woman's son, or resuscitates, to be more accurate. And just as the centurion had incredible faith in Jesus, you remember that his servant would be completely healed. So the Shunammite had bold faith, a Gentile, bold faith in Israel's God, highlighting Israel's dead faith in their own God. Let's pick up at 2 Kings 4.25. So she went and came to the man of God to Mount Carmel, that is the Shunammite woman, When the man of God saw her at a distance, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Behold, there is the Shunammite. Please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? It is well. Is it well with the child? And she answered, It is well. The child had already died. This is a statement of faith that is not felt a statement of bold faith in Elisha and Elisha's God. Extraordinary. She had faith before the reality. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. We know the conviction of things not not seen and might I say not realized yet. Sound familiar? We see this and the centurion. But God always had a lesson for his people, of course. And what is that one central lesson, often repeated for our sake and our edification, that it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Look at verse 42 with me at the end of chapter 4 of Second Kings. Now a man came from Baal Shalashah, and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And he said, Give them to the people that they may eat. His attendant said, What? Will I set this before a hundred men? But he said, Give them to the people that they may eat. 
For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he said it before them, and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. And roughly some 850 years later, Jesus said, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. And Jesus was greater than Elisha, and he fed 5,000. And the Gospels indicate, just like Second Kings, that they ate and had some left over. We need to read our Bibles in light of the old and in light of the new, concurrently. So important. To better appreciate the depth and the texture of the Gospels, we need to know our Old Testament. Faith, in particularly, people of God. The righteousness of faith is the core continuity between the Old Testament and the New. The righteousness of faith. And so God is speaking to us then, front and center, right here, chapter 5 about total faith in Israel's God, the God who is alive. As Israel trusted in God, she flourished. As she trusted in worldly and pressing matters, what the Bible calls Baalism, she suffered greatly. Worship idols, you will suffer greatly. Worship God, and you will flourish greatly. And so we come to chapter 5. Very much encouraged by the um, the number of commentators on this passage, most notably uh, Tim Keller, Pastor Lightheart, and others. And I'm eager to share with you some of their gleanings um, from this chapter. Listen to this as we begin begin with chapter 5 in particular. At each major juncture of Israel's history. This is so important. At each major juncture point of Israel's history, a what appears as a sponsor of the covenant people? A Gentile. This is not without accident. Why? This is to remind Israel and the church that God uses unlikely people to showcase his glory. If we read our Bibles from beginning to end, We know that. And God shows grace in the most surprising ways. But, remember, at each major juncture of Israel's history, a Gentile appears as a sponsor of the covenant people. And that's what we have here. Naomi. Do you remember Abraham with who? Melchizedek in Genesis 14. Even in Exodus 12, the Exodus, the freed Israelites, by the way, were with a mixed multitude of Gentiles. Jethro helped Moses in Exodus 18. You remember Rahab, Canaanite prostitute, helped critically the Israelite spies in Joshua 2. Ruth, the what? The Moabitess. The period of the judges. David has contact with believing Gentiles. Hiram of Tyre helps Solomon build the very temple, the center of Israel. 
Remember God's greater plan for his world? That is one pastor said, from the beginning, Yahweh intends for all the families of the earth to be blessed in Abraham's seed. Genesis 12. So if that's the case, that's the case, we're going to see a lot of salty, interesting characters from every tribe, tongue, and nation showcasing God's glory. If that's the case, a lesson forgotten and neglected and subdued by Israel throughout the Bible. Let's dive in. Now, Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. So what can we learn about Naaman? Just from this, he's wealthy. Naaman has athletic prowess, to be sure. Popular acclaim. Think of, think of powerful, significant, popular people in our culture. Real success for this guy. The Aramean dream. A valiant soldier. He's like an MMA fighter. Okay? Mixed martial arts. He's that kind of guy. He's got it together. Highly decorated. Honored. This is a man of substance. A ten-talent man. That's who we have here. Now, remember, the Arameans were a great enemy to Israel at this time. Remember that. This is not friends. Aram is what? Aram is Syria. Syrians and Israel were at war so often in history. This is like a colonial pastor in the 1700s helping a British general during the Revolutionary War. That's what this is like in this passage. This is what Elisha was to Naaman. But Naaman, of course, had some kind of some kind of leprosy, though obviously not so extremely severe yet at this point. And we know there's a great stigmatization with leprosy. So here's a very powerful, successful man, but he's got a serious flaw. His Achilles heel. He's got leprosy. C.S. Lewis once said, until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, an outsider you will remain. And so he was compelled to reach even to an enemy for help. In First and Second Kings, there's a contrast between powerless kings incompetent and compromised leaders and the power of Yahweh through his prophets. No less here. Let's continue. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel and she waited on Naaman's wife. She's a slave to Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Naaman's wife, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman heard this, right, went in and told his master, saying, thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. What do you notice about that? What's her name? Verse 2, little girl. Uh, Look at verse 4. Maybe her name is there. The girl. She's nameless. 
she's, she's one of the most important characters in this entire narrative. She's just a girl. But not without accident. Can I just ask you, I mean, we, we get so used to reading the scriptures that sometimes we stop asking basic questions or having basic, noticing basic things, when, like when we read other books of literature. Can I ask you, what would you do with your kidnapper? You 12-year-olds, 10-year-olds, girls out in the congregation right now, you're kidnapped? What would you do? Would you direct would you direct your kidnapper to his salvation? Barely noticeable in this story is this little nameless slave girl. Don't miss it. Because even this nameless, little, obscure, bottom of the barrel of societies in Syria, even she is part of the bigger story of what the design of Second Kings is trying to highlight. The contrast between powerless kings people that had power, they thought they had power, but they didn't, they were impotent, and the power of God. Through obscure prophets and slaves. Think about this girl. Her parents and family are gone. She most likely would have had every reason, as you can imagine, for what? Total bitterness. Hatred towards her kidnapper. What she knew could save him. She could really make him suffer by withholding what? The good news. She could make him pay for his sins. Many in her position would have been delighted to watch their slave masters slowly die. But she did not seek revenge. She entrusted herself to the judge of all the earth this powerless slave girl forgave him and became the vehicle through which Naaman was healed and saved. Not many mighty, not many noble. Verse 5, Then the king of Aram said, Go now, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver, and 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothes. 750 pounds of silver. 150 pounds of gold with clothes thrown in. He brought the letter to the king of Israel saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman, my servant to you. Note the irony, that you may cure him of his leprosy. By the way, can you do that? We'll give you gold and silver. Naaman basically expected that because of the wealth and the letter from none other than his master, Ben-Hadad II, the king of Aram, to Jehoram, the king of Israel, would command Elisha to heal him. The Syrians knew that there was some kind of power with Israel for healing and miracles. And really, this stands as something of a rebuke 
to Israel, who herself was largely unbelieving of what God had given her. Follow with me. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a fight, an occasion against me. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, I love this, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. We have Yahweh God. They do not. But Naaman's wealth was significant. His position, significant, is powerless to deal with his main problem. How many of us think that way too? No. Naaman would have to be baptized. He could only receive from God. Only. He could not earn. He could not buy. He could not perform. He could not achieve his way into dealing with his most central problem. And that is a lesson for us all. All baptisms are infant baptisms, aren't they? No man can boast. We must become like little children before we can be saved. Naaman didn't understand Israel's God. He probably thought Elisha, honestly, was a quack. It's just like the highly skilled 1950s novelist Flannery O'Connor. The heroes in her stories are what? Often crazed, backwood, religious quacks. Naaman didn't understand how free, how surprising grace really is. So he has the king of Aram pull strings to secure healing as though it would come that way. But salvation is by faith not by wealth, not by success, not performance. The God of Israel is not like the gods of other nations. Yahweh God, remember, cannot be bought or appeased. He is to be submitted to and trusted. This Aramean was too proud to go straight to the prophet and beg for help. That's what he needed to do. It would have been an interesting story if it would have been that way. But for a reason, it's this way. He used money, expensive letterhead, and the big people to try and do the job. But there are some things in life that only God can do. And even us as believers forget that lesson. And we try to earn and to achieve and to perform and to establish identity around everything else but Christ. In us, the hope of glory. There is a deep lesson here that needs to be heard and lived, people of God. 
So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha didn't go down to see him. Elisha sent a slave, a messenger to him, saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you'll be clean. Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. Put on a show. Do something for me, Naaman, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Seven. He's supposed to wash, dip seven times. That's not a coincidence, of course. Nothing in the Bible is, especially with numbers in the Bible. It's not that complicated. Seven is the number for perfect completion in the Bible. Complete redemption. That's what it means. Seven is complete, complete redemption in the Bible. Seven is particularly a stamp in Scripture for the work of God. Whenever you see seven in the Bible, that's the work of God, not man. What is the number of man in the Bible? What is the number of man in the Bible? Thank you. Six. Is the number particularly of imperfection? Six, six, six. Man's work, corrupt, imperfect. So seven times, complete redemption, he is to be baptized. Naaman had to learn what we all do throughout the Christian life. The way up is the way down. First, he had to accept the counsel. Think about it. First, he had to accept the counsel of the lowest of the low. A little slave girl from another country. And then he didn't even get to see the great Elisha. A messenger was sent to Naaman, probably because he was an unclean Gentile with leprosy. Look, Naaman was used to dealing with great men. And he wanted Elisha to stand before him, a great man. You see, Elisha is a servant to Yahweh, not the captain of the army of Syria. And then it goes further. He again has to take counsel from who? Verse 13, look at it. Who is he taking counsel from? Verse 13. Slaves. He has to go low. He's being humiliated. He's being humbled. He's being squashed flat. As God has done and will do in every single one of us. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? Tim Keller says, Naaman is after a God who can be put into debt. So really important implications from this passage for us. But this is a God of grace who puts everyone else in his debt.
14. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the Lord, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Think of this. Jesus, the one who took our curse, bore the spiritual leprosy of the world and was excluded from before his father's presence so that all Jew and Gentile might be washed and brought near to him. Can grace be earned, inherited, presumed? Can we earn our healing? Religious people the world over think that being godly means controlling externals. Mere outward behavior in skirts that are within 2.75 inches above the knee. But Jesus said that loving God with all your heart begins with your thought life. It begins with your affections, your desires, the internal, your attitude. But to be healed, to be saved, inside out, you must get low. Think about it. Naaman would probably have gladly accepted some great Navy SEAL challenge wouldn't he? But just washing? This was an offense to Naaman's pride. Washing in the Jordan, no less. Capturing the flag 100 feet below the surface of the Mediterranean Sea? Sure. Running 50 miles? Okay. But baptism in this Israeli river? Naaman was enraged. The river, interestingly, the river Abana was clear and transparent in Damascus, originating from the Lebanese mountains. Whereas, you probably know, the Jordan is, was muddy and clay-colored. This was a sign of the new covenant age where Christian baptism equalizes the Jews and Gentiles into one slave and free Rich and poor. Nationalities besides, this is a community marked out by what? A community marked out by the righteousness of faith. In simple water baptism. How can water mean so much? Why do we make such a big deal about baptism? Such a simple rite. Such a simple practice. one of the most glorious covenant seals in the New Testament. And it's not because of magic. It's not because God is bound to the ritual of baptism, but it is because it's attended with water and word. Water and God's promise. That's why it's such a big deal. Baptism has power because God's covenant word is associated with it. Peter Lightheart helpfully writes, Baptism is an insult to the wisdom of Naaman, an insult to the wisdom of the world. Because through the foolishness of water, God has chosen to save those who believe. The foolishness of faith. Grace is so humbling. It's beautiful. One pastor said, No one can control the true God 
because no one can earn merit or achieve their own blessing and salvation. But Naaman's thinking something like, look, any idiot, any child can paddle around in the Jordan. That takes no ability or attainment at all. Quite simply, Naaman thought because of who he was that this prophet would serve him. That miracles would be done for the great Naaman. But no, you must You must become, I must become, like a little child to enter the kingdom of God. Christian, God's healing is for anyone, accomplished or not, weak or strong. This was offensive to his pride, our pride. He could only... Receive from God. That's it. Someone said, if you want God's grace, all you need is need. Do you have need? Do you have need? All you need is need. Nothing. Grace changes Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that we can only receive what freedom is found in this good news. The news that you have taken our sins upon your body on the cross that we might die to sin, receive from you, and live to righteousness. Joyfully, in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. As we come to the table, Christian, those who may be not Christians here, we would ask that you would refrain from coming to the Lord's Supper as it is a covenant-binding, holy meal for those who have gotten low, for those who have been baptized, who express faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. We call upon you to be reconciled to God. Good news and grace is there. But for all, remember, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, like babies and senior citizens and handicapped and disabled that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Congregation of God, listen carefully. Verse 30, 1 Corinthians. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Not your doing. His. Who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts Boast in the Lord. You can only receive. Christianity is the only religion 
the true religion about grace only received. Let's pray together. Our Father, we give you immortal praise and thanks that upon us you have given so great a benefit as to bring us into the very communion of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. As the elements are being passed out, turn to page 267 when I survey the wondrous cross. Lord Jesus, we have met with you. You have met with us, cleansed us, forgiven us, transformed us, Lord. And now you are commissioning us. Here we are. Send us. In Jesus' name, amen. When it comes to genuine religion in this final charge to you, authentic Christianity, remember grace. What costs us nothing cost him everything. Grace changes everything. Hear the benediction of the Lord Jesus Christ to you personally. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. And let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor, you will surround him as with the shield. Amen.